I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I'm an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line, you can take the boy out of Wind Gap, but you can't take the Wind Gap out of the boy. It's Andy Greenwald. Can, can you take the, the teeth out of the boy? Is that <laughs> oh, where you were going? Somebody read a recap. <laughs> <laughs> Shh, no spoilers, no spoilers. What's up, Christmas chilies? Listen, man, I eat a lot of chilies. <laughs> Greenwald called me on Sunday. This is the new. This is the new normal. So uh, Andy and I live probably 15 minutes away from each other. We see each other twice uh-huh. a week. We are in constant text message communication. But I would put our last social phone call. It, this is a great point you're making. I'm, I support this. Go I'm going to say like mid Obama admin. Maybe like around 12, something like that. I've well, gotten I mean, two of them so far since Andy has relocated to uh, to the New Mexico desert. Yesterday, just driving back from Santa Fe just with 45 minutes to kill and no podcasts to listen to. Listen, your boy um, woke up and drove to Santa Fe to have breakfast. So that's a good insight into his mind state. But, you know, my friends at the Ringer Podcast Network have been really comforting to me. And I've been enjoying them a lot. I really love listening to you and Sean talk about summer movies. Yes, that was a big picture production that did wind up running on The Watch. So if you get a chance to listen to that, Sean and I ran down some summer movie awards. Highly recommend it. I love listening to my spirit animals, Dave Chang and JJ Reddick, talk about L.A. versus Brooklyn restaurants and enrolling children into kindergarten. I just feel like that was right down the middle for me. But you are right that... Our relationship is mostly through those other mediums. So the talking is new for are, are you did it go well for you? Were you okay with it? Oh yeah, for sure. I, I I've actually always been kind of a phone guy. It's true. But it's I think true. that the, you, over the last couple of years my attention pan, span is kind of shrinking. So sometimes I'm like, I now I'm on the phone and I kinda of want to get off. I do that to my mom well, all the time. I feel terrible. I, I listen, I I think the most important takeaway from this conversation is that I called you theoretically to tell you some news that I wanted to share with you only to be reminded that I had texted you the news 12 hours previously. That's right. So that's what the chilies are doing to my head right now. I want to report back to our listeners that yes, I was in search of a, a roast leg of lamb burrito, which I discovered and ingested. It was the, the right move. For wow. A powerful Sunday. Leg of lamb burrito. Yeah, man. But, but I failed in my other mission to Santa Fe, which was to locate and secure American treasure Gene Hackman and to bring him back to the screen. <laughs> because I feel like this is an underreported aspect of cultural life in America, that one of the greatest actors of all time appeared in uh, Welcome to Mooseport or Moosewood or whatever with Ray Romano yeah. like 13 years ago, and then just deuced out of the profession. And not because he was unwell or couldn't do it anymore, but because he just wanted to retire to Santa Fe to live in the sunshine and like maybe write mystery novels. And if you've seen pictures of him recently, he looks great. Santa Fe has often, it's long been a, a a kind of welcome refuge for our aging thespians. Like Sam Shepard lived lived there for a while, I think. Did he really? Yeah. Well, it's a great place. For, Hackman is 88 years young, by the way, mm. and he looks great. And, you know, I kind of wish, look, this is, this is neither here nor there. We're obviously going to talk about a lot of TV. We're going to talk about the True Detective trailer. We're going to talk about Lodge. We're going to talk about... The Sharp uh, Objects Castle finale. Rock, sharp Objects. But... 
But man, I wish we could get one more Gene Hackman performance. <laughs> maybe, maybe just watch him react to me eating a leg of lamb burrito in the morning. Like that would have been enough for me. I could have put it on Instagram stories and been done with it. <laughs> but we don't have actors like that anymore, man. I've been going through the casting process. I say, get me Gene Hackman. There are no Gene Hackmans. <laughs> That's right. That would be super annoying if you were just like, I want Hackman. Hackman. Uh, Greenwald, let's start. Uh, let's go through it like this. Let's do True Detective trailer, Sharp Objects finale. Mm-hmm. Castle Rock, and then we can chat a little bit about Lodge. I'm on episode three. Did you watch three? I watched three, and four airs tonight. F- right, we're recording this on Monday. I thought four was on Sundays. Or did they put it? They put it on with Better Call Saul on Mondays. Yeah, it's with Saul. It's a Monday night show. Oh, okay. Um, all right, so we can talk about episode three of Lodge. Uh, so let's start with the True Detective trailer. Obviously, um, my feelings about this series are well known. I, I adore the first season. I think it's one of the best things that got made this decade. I was probably one of the more vocal defenders of season two, but sometimes you just have to like dig in and and protect the Alamo. Uh, (laughs) Even if you get overrun. Um, I acknowledge that it is nowhere near as good as the first season, but there are certain things about it that I really liked. Um, Now, finally, after the, the ding that the second season took, although I don't think it ever really dipped, it dipped a little bit in ratings, but I still think it was compared to a lot of television fairly well watched. Uh, a few years later, we finally have True Detective Season 3, starring uh, Mahershala Ali, Oscar Award winner from Moonlight, um, Stephen Dorff, Scoot McNary, got a gummer. Um, so it's a lot is happening in this, and it's set in the Ozarks, which obviously is a, is a special place for me and Andy. Uh, and it will take place over multiple timelines, over multiple decades. And if you saw the trailer, you can see Mahershala uh, obviously aging... Um, and and battling with with ghosts of his past in the in the trailer, Andy. Let, let me say, with true true respect, Nikki the P knows how to cast, right? Yep. You know what I mean? Like this is a great cast. It looks it, it it's a great trailer. Um, I am very excited for a cop show starring Mahershala Ali. I think he's just one of the most magnetic actors working, and it's very exciting. Um, I think longtime listeners know I do not share your ardor for season one. <laughs> it is a take I do not back down from. Um, today, our friend Zach Barron has a profile of the director of season one, Carrie Fukunaga. Uh, it's online. It's in GQ, I guess, on newsstand soon because Carrie directed um, the entire season of Maniac. my friend Patrick Somerville's show Maniac, yeah. which is excited to debut next month on uh, on uh, Netflix. And I think, you know, I don't know if it's been reported, but certainly not the best blood has been insinuated between Carrie and Nick Pizzolatto. I have no insight into the matter, only to say that in this piece, Carrie Fukunaga refers to season one as basically a formulaic cop show. That's not the exact quote, but that I yeah, feel comfortable. I, can I just push back a little bit on that? Uh, also, yeah. Carmen Ajogo is in this, is in True Detective yeah, season man. three too. But I just want to push back a, a slight amount because I read that. I saw people saying like, oh, Carrie's dragging true detective I, I know uh but i think he was saying it's just a cop show let's have some fun with it i don't think he was saying that the final product was no but but the but he is referring to um the the scripts mm-hmm. you know that he elevated in his own i think in his own mind with the direction which i think is true and i think that's what we were left with in season two I have a complicated relationship to that whole, the whole thing now, quite honestly, because now I am, you know, sitting here in a production office trying to make TV. And I think that I am 
And I think I was at the time too, but I think I am definitely more fond of and sympathetic to season two in a way because, you know, again, by all accounts and also reading the tea leaves and just experiencing it, it was an, ex- it was an example of a writer um, resting ownership of something and going for broke, right? And now I think he broke. I think that that season did not work on many, 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 many levels. But the ambition behind it and the desire to do something great I do feel um, is worthy of applause. And so I, but even more than that, I appreciate the fact that due to circumstance, due to career movements or whatever else happened in the interim, that this, that HBO granted a creator in whom they've invested quite a bit time to, if not get it right, feel comfortable doing it. Um, so yes. I'm, I'm, I, I, the deck is cleared. I'm optimistic for it. Um, and aside from certainly- aside from this amazing cast, the other reason to be optimistic about this season is the presence, at least for the first few episodes. And he was supposed to direct more, I think, but wound up leaving. I mean, w- for timing reasons, I think. But also, I think you could make an argument that maybe Nick Pizzolatto is a notoriously prickly character when it comes to obviously as we've talked about with these first two seasons, and there was about creative control, but Jeremy Saulnier, who's a director that I really like a lot, who directed a movie called Blue Ruin and a movie called Green Room and has a Netflix film called Hold the Dark coming in the fall, directed the first few episodes of season three. And there is also the kind of unknown how much, I know he's got script credit on at least one of the episodes this season, is David Milch, who we haven't seen have a TV thing in a minute. So I'm really, I'm pretty fired up to see this and it's coming in January of 2019 which is a nice thing to look forward to. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I'm I never going to say no to this show. I, I guess, and this might be a good segue into the other HBO property we're going to discuss, Sharp Objects. Um, I guess to track my feelings about the show through the seasons and to go back to Kerry Fukunaga's quote, you know, I've actually always enjoyed the show most when it felt comfortable being a cop show because I don't think there's anything wrong with being a murder mystery show or a cop show. I think that you can enhance it and elevate it in the way you tell the story and in performances and direction and dialogue and, you know, and, and, and everything. But I, I, I think that for me, the moments of True Detective that worked best, I, and, and, you know, and I got grief for it then and I'll get it again now, it's fine. But my favorite episode of that first season was the penultimate one, which was basically... Um, Woody and McConaughey just work in the case. Yeah. You know, yeah. and and so I agree with you that it, it's interesting that Sonia fell off this project. That doesn't worry me so much because he was replaced by Daniel Sackheim, who is a veteran television director with great credits to his name. And honestly, sometimes I think that the, you know, everyone quote me on this when I become a monster in five to six months or minutes, depending. But I, I don't think it's a bad thing when the logistics and reality of making a television show uh, are forced to collide with the ambition of the artiste. I think that the best things come from those collisions. Yeah. So I'm very curious to see what happens with this show. Well, let's talk about Sharp Objects because I thought that there was an interesting, uh, it, it wasn't a tension that was at all on the surface or really anything that you would say like, oh, there was there was trouble behind the scenes with Sharp Objects. Not, not in the least. Um, but I thought it was really interesting. I read an interview with Gillian Flynn on, on Vulture this morning after watching the finale last night, and uh, we'll talk about spoilers, so if you haven't gotten a chance to finish Sharp Objects yet and don't want it spoiled, feel free to skip ahead. Um, but last night's episode end, ended in a way that was a very interesting example of competing creative viewpoints of a show. So Gillian Flynn, with no shade, they ask her about the twist ending and the twist ending is essentially that, uh, you know, 
Patricia Clarkson's matriarch figure, Adora, has been put in prison for uh, poisoning her children, uh, Munchausen by proxy syndrome. And uh, what is that? And why are we all why are we all expected to know what that is? They explain it pretty. They explain it pretty significantly in the show. It's basically like when you make people sick because you you want to take take care of them. Uh, Was Phantom Thread? What's that? Phantom Thread alert. Yeah. And uh, so she goes to prison and she's uh, convicted of killing the two girls whose murders are the sort of central mystery of the show in the beginning. But then, uh, and uh, and Amy Adams' Camille takes her s- sister, uh, Ama, to St. Louis with her and live happily ever after. And then the last couple of minutes, it seems like something's off with Ama and her friend May. And then in a uh, at the very last shot of the episode, we find out that it's in fact Ama who's who killed the girls and has killed her new friend May, and uh, frankly torn their teeth out to make a ivory floor in her uh, dollhouse. And cool. then in a Marvel esque edit cre- credit sequence, we sh- we see Ama killing those girls, and then we see her as the woman in white, who is this sort of mythical figure in the show of appearing out of the woods and luring kids to her and killing them. And uh, they asked Gillian Flynn about the specific handling of the scene and the reveal. And she was like, that's a Jean-Marc question in reference to Jean-Marc Valet. And I thought that that was very telling, even if it wasn't supposed to be, because it's just like, there's so many uh, cooks in the kitchen on these things. This is a Gillian Flynn novel. She worked on the screenplay, but Marty Noxon was the, was the showrunner and and they collaborated on the final teleplay and Jean-Marc Vallée directed every episode and he's got a lot of quan right now from HBO after Big Little Lies. So you've got these different things and Jean-Marc in the in the post show kind of chat was like yeah like that was like a that was really cool you're like what? He was very into that and I thought for a show that was as meditative uh as um Sharp Objects was almost to a fault, you know, where it's like almost wallowing in the consequences and wallowing in the the aftermaths of traumatic events. To have it be sixth sensed at the end didn't, I didn't care one way or the other, but it just didn't feel consistent with the rest of the show. Do you think that there was any thought behind those? Do you think anything behind that decision making to do that? is related to the, the possibility of making a second season? Well, that was another question that Gillian Flynn was asked, which was, is there a second season or is there a possibility? And she she didn't say no. She just said, like, it was always supposed to be one season. This is what it's supposed to be. But obviously, <laughs> that's not going to be, that's not necessarily the case if everybody involved wants to do more. Now, there was never a Sharp Object season two or another Sharp, like a Sharp Object sequel, although in the book, apparently... They get more into Ama's trial and some explanations about the how and the why, but yeah, and more from what I from what I understand, more about the um, the subsequent caring and you know maybe potentially like life rehabilitation of Camille, right? That, sure, that, that but that doesn't. I, I mean, the the, ultimately, and I you know you, ultimately the the point of the show is to plunge Camille in further into darkness and have her come out into the light, only to find out that the light is actually fire. You know, like, it's 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 the journey going home. I mean, everything about this show is one season. And this is, I, I actually am 
quite looking forward to Big Little Lies season two. I can't believe Andrea Arnold is making it. It's it's gonna be really exciting. But the inability the, the, this is the sort of consequence of these limited series where you get movie stars to be in them and everybody gets kind of excited about it and then wants more is they're not written as such. They're not written uh, to be multi-season arcs. So mm-hmm. I'll be curious to see how they they figure that out or whether or not they look at sharp objects the way they look at True Detective, which is an umbrella under which to tell uh, maybe women's crime stories. I don't know. Yeah, it's all interesting to me. And, you know, I'm not going to come back on the mic and pretend that I re-embraced the show or enjoyed it or even watched the bulk of it. I was out. Um I remain out for the aesthetic reasons that I that we laid out before, but I have to say I am impressed from revisiting it, it for the very end and, and and you know seeing how it affected people and people enjoyed it by the way that again regardless of Jean-Marc Vallée's decision making at the end, um, they did go ahead and make a show that from what I can gather is true to uh, Gillian Flynn's rather subversive points about how we overlook. Um, female agency, female capacity for for violence, and you know what actually could be going on in the minds of daughters and mothers, as opposed to just being daughters and mothers. Um, it's a thread that's you know well worth exploring in literature and on our screens. Um, Megan Abbott, who's been a great friend of us on the pod and is a great writer, uh, has a wonderful new novel out and is also making a pilot for USA called Dare Me. That you know, in in the broadest of strokes, I think is interested in similar things. I think that's all fantastic. I also just want to highlight um, Alison Herman's piece on The Ringer about how the show is a mood. Mm-hmm. I really liked the piece. I thought it was a really um, smart investigation of why people, some people liked it and some people didn't. I think um, I thought it. I thought it had a very smart um, perspective on why this might be a show that actually would have benefited from binging as opposed to the way that HBO rolled it out, which is a way that you and I, Chris, usually prefer. Um, but I also just wanted to say like this idea of TV shows as moods is a very worthwhile one. And it's something that I think has been around for a while, but I still think in the way we collectively cover stuff or process stuff, both as fans and as critics, it hasn't totally baked in. What I mean is it's well understood, I think, by consumers of culture that there are movies out there that we just might not vibe to. So some people don't like Sorrentino movies, like The Great Beauty, because they just can't spend three hours in someone's head. Or some people are just, their blood runs cold at the thought of watching a Wes Anderson movie. From everything I've gathered, Jeremy Saunier, who you mentioned a minute ago, is a really fascinating and exciting filmmaker to watch, but I'm too afraid to check out his movies (laughs) because you've told me personally what they would do to me. That's fine. Those are moods. And we can pick and choose the moods we want to engage with. But I just realized in thinking about this and thinking about Sharp Objects and thinking about Allison's piece, look, the young Pope, speaking of Sorrentino, that is a grade A mood. And I get that some people weren't willing to go on that journey. You know, I think about that show all the time and I wish I could still be watching it right now. Um, but it's not for everyone. Twin Peaks is a mood. Um, it's just a different way to consider TV shows. Um, one that might not necessarily track with HBO's you know, overall strategy of competing with Netflix and gaining viewers. Um, there's a, probably a reason why Netflix is no longer really overtly investing in moods and instead investing in Tony Danza procedurals and baking competitions. Although, but, b- by that same token, they're investing in Kari Fukunaga making apparently a complete fucking head trip of a show. And whether or not it's successful aesthetically or critically or commercially like remains to be seen. But it's not like they're not taking chances. I think they just need to have some assurances that there are going to be some top-line talent that's going to at least 
give them a True. baseline of, of attention if they do it. True, but I have to say also, I, again, without any knowledge of the people in the rooms when they make these decisions, but when the property of Maniac became available, it was loosely adapted from a, a European format, uh, Kerry Fukunaga attaches, anonymous content attaches, uh, Emma Stone and Jonah Hill attach, without any script. This is before Patrick got involved. They, there was no sense of what it would be. They went around, you know, they pitched it. I wonder if they were pitching it now in like, you know, going into fourth Q 2018, would Netflix outbid everyone else or would they not? I don't know. They certainly have the money, but I wonder if their strategy has shifted in the intervening years, which doesn't mean they're not supportive sure. of the show. I yeah, think it's yeah. going to be dope, but it's, it'd be, it's, it's an interesting thought experiment. Let me go back to the mood thing for a second, because I think that that, I, I mean, I obviously loved Allison's piece and I thought that the finale was a pretty good example of of what she's talking about. This is an episode that has a lot of uh, information to convey and a lot of actually like a lot of plot to get through. I mean, you have to have, uh, you know, Camille has to go home. She has to save Ama. They have to arrest Adora. There has to be some sort of resolution with with that. There has to be resolution with Camille's relationship with the Christmasina character, Richard. But I would say at least feel-wise, I mean, if you actually broke down the running time, I'm not sure what this would come out to. But I would say most of the episode is Amy Adams dry heaving and Matt Craven smoking in the heat. And that's how you make a mood. That's how you make a mood show is when you're just like, I just really like the look of Matt Craven standing against this bush smoking and sweating. And I really uh, like the look of, of Amy my, Adams writhing in this show. bathtub, you know? And that's mm-hmm. a choice you make because it creates this vibe. But then when you have to slam a ton of plot and also this, albeit somewhat t- broadcast by the fact that they had t- kind of tied up the show with 20 minutes to go, and you're like, well, there's got to be something else. Well, If you do that, yeah. then it's like, oh, well, like, does can you communicate plot effectively while still having mood? That's the thing that I think is the hardest part. Well, let's take that same uh, point to a, the next logical step, which is the shows that we're describing as moods are director-driven shows. Uh, Twin Peaks is David Lynch. Um, uh, Young Pope is Sorrentino. This is, you know, going back to the when we first started talking about this a few minutes ago, you were talking about John, Jean-Marc Vallée's choices of how to communicate crucial information at the end of the show. You mentioned his Quan. It was in full effect when the making of the show. The things that he does, the cutaways, the sort of stitches in time, his trademark shots that have been there going back to Dallas Buyers Club were so dominant in this that it, it, it personally took me out of it. The question is for TV, which has generally historically been a writer's-driven medium, can a writer-driven show be a mood um, or not? And I think that's kind of what we're getting at when you talk about just the delivery of plot, which is the writer's job and is what TV used to do primarily, versus everything else around it. Yeah, for sure. All right, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and then we're going to come back and we're going to talk about Castle Rock and Lodge 49, which have their own moods to, to work with. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by ADT. ADT can design and install a smart home just for you, backed by 24-7 protection. Explore the vast number of things you can do with your secure smart home. Like, you can have doorman service, which is an ADT automation that unlocks the door for packages, friends, or your kids. Or you can have turndown service, an ADT automation that arms your system, locks your doors, and turns down your lights and thermostat. 
or even their worry-free getaway service, which lets you arm your system, lock up, and set lighting schedules before you go on vacation. All controlled from the ADT app or the sound of your voice and backed by 24-7 protection. And don't worry about installing and configuring your system. ADT will D-I-F-Y it, do it for you. Just visit ADT.com slash smart to learn more about how ADT can design and install a secure smart home just for you. All right, man. Uh, let's talk a little Castle Rock. Uh, it's the Hulu sh- show based on the, large, like loosely based on the Stephen King universe um, that Andy and I watched a couple episodes we talked about a couple weeks ago. I think the first two. And then we hadn't really touched on in a while, but this seventh episode, The Queen, kind of lit up the internet for an, a day and a half last week, which is quite quite impressive when you consider what the <laughs> internet's like. That's considerable. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's... Pretty much a showcase episode for Sissy SpaceX character, um, and I, I kind of wanted to see what you how you were feeling about this because I think that it was clearly positioned as like this marquee episode, and you probably knew that going into it, didn't you? Like that this was what you were yes. supposed to think about it. So, did the expectations of, of it change how you were feeling about it? Probably. I think it would be unfair to suggest otherwise, um, you know, especially because th- the the message went out, the flare went up in the air to people who maybe like us had been on the fence about the show that, oh, no, come back. This one's worth it. And to me, that raises a larger question that I'd love to talk about once we're done talking about the specifics of the episode, which is in this streaming, highly serialized era, can album oriented series or a serialized series still have a hit single, meaning can one episode be pulled out? Now, obviously, you should still know the characters. You should watch the whole season. I'm not arguing otherwise. But can the magnificence of a single episode carry it, uh, separate and apart from everything else? My feeling after having watched this episode is not, probably not, although I wish it could. Um, Let me begin by saying I was truly dazzled by the production values by the aesthetics behind this episode. Greg Yatanis is one of my favorite television directors. He directed the bulk of the episodes of Banshee, a show I dearly loved, and of every episode of Quarry, um, one of the best new series of the last few years, and a show that I am still frustrated over the way it was treated by Cinemax. It it should still be going. Um, The delicacy with which he told the story visually and the confidence with which he did it was truly impressive. Equally impressive is Sissy Spacek's performance, um, I mean, let's just, we should maybe just pause to say like, what a treat in 2018 to see such a, such a legendary actress just still bringing the high heat. Mm-hmm. And I'm excited to see her on Sam's new show, Homecoming. I'm thrilled that she's finding stuff to sink her teeth into. She's great in this episode. Scott Glenn is great in this episode too. But I have to say that as someone who is not invested in the emotional stakes of this show. I was only able to admire it from a technical perspective, uh, which is a shame, you know, because I think TV and all visual medium work best when everything is in concert. I admired this show, this episode, The Queen, but I was I was almost, almost unmoved by it, which was not how I wanted to feel or how I expected to feel. I felt about this episode the way I feel about a lot of Stephen King stuff, which is that, it sounds great, and I get pretty into it going in, in in the first sort of opening movements. So 
the premises usually really appeal to me and the settings usually really appeal to me and even the opening kind of inciting incidents really appeal to me and whatever's the galvanizing event. But as you get deeper and deeper into it and then you're forced to demand uh, an explanation as to what the hell is going on, I find okay. myself pretty let down. Now, for people who don't know, I don't really want to get too far into it because like, I don't want to spoil what happens in this episode. But also, I don't know that I can totally explain what happens in this episode because it's essentially uh, talking about dementia or Alzheimer's as a... Mm -hmm portal to time travel um and also the, it has it features everything from ghosts to um you know these kinds of constant style inception spinning top markers that she's leaving all mm -hmm. around to kind of give herself reminders of what happened in certain rooms in her house and at the end you're not really sure where or when the show leaves off and that actually is quite daring, you know, to, to do such an uh, acrobatic mid-season move. Did you feel that at the end, though? I, 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 I actually, I thought that the, sh I thought that for all my complaints about it, I thought that it landed the punch, meaning throughout the episode, every time we see a chess piece, that's both Sissy SpaceX's character and the audience's way of understanding that this isn't really happening now. This is the past. And for almost every time we, that happens, we're glad and grateful for it because we're seeing, you know, unpleasant memories related to her now deceased husband and his treatment of their child and so on and so forth. At the very end, when Scott Glenn appears, despite having died moments earlier by her hand, uh, it's a beautiful moment to leave us on and we understand the emotional connection between them. And then we pull back and the gut punch is, oh, this isn't, this isn't. Right. But now I mean, like, so I, I guess in the, in the sense that everything feels real to her. So it's just if she's able to do this, quote unquote, able to do this, it does that necessarily right. prevent her from doing it again or whatever. Um, but yeah, I, I think that you, your point is a really good one when you're trying to make a state. I, I think that this is another when you're trying to make a single out of this album. How does it how do you ha what do you have to do to the season itself to do it? And I think that this is a show that um, is trying to go somewhere that I'm, I'm not really sure is on the map right now. Yes, I think that's well said. I, I think that you know, again, I something another. I'm just but that's the kind of thing admire, with King, which, though. It's like the King thing is like there is an evil out there, and I don't necessarily know that in a in a, a serialized television show you can kind of keep moving the the goalposts as much. I don't know. Well, I also think that, and I, and I say this, I, I don't mean for this to sound like faint praise when I say I admire it, but I really do admire that the showrunner Sam Shaw and Dustin Thomason are taking, trying to wrap their arms, and they have four arms, which they need to wrap, but to, to get the, just the circumference to get around all of the stuff at play here. They're trying to wrap their arms around the King thing, as you just put it, and do fan service and et cetera, et cetera, Easter eggs. But it seems that what motivates them is a much more personal and smaller scale story. Uh, the type of story that certainly exists in King's short stories, but is generally not the first thing we think of when we think about him. You know, th th for all the places this show has gone, it has stayed in some ways emotionally tied to this family in this home. Um, so I admire that. I think that's a great, I think that's a direction TV, particularly branded TV, should always try to do because you can't tell the big, vague picture. You got to tell the small, relatable picture first, uh, story first. But 
you know, again, maybe we're asking too much of it because in the context of the season, what this episode was doing was just illuminating something that they were tracking behind the scenes, right? Because we've seen Sissy Spacek interact with every character and she's acted in a bizarre or surprising fashion. And now we see where she was in those scenes. So in that sense, it's a, you know, it's a remarkable act of story juggling and, um, and consideration and perspective changing, but and and that is its own goal, I think. But I think, but I I also we should cop to the fact that coming off of the Ringers list a few weeks ago about the best uh, episodes of the century, when we heard the word the constant, when we hear the idea of people, you know, trying to to un trying to stick themselves in time, like we go to that place. And the thing about the constant is that it was a love story, which helped, not a tragedy, but also it had just for me the right amount of just what the fuckness like they went for it whereas this is tethered to not just the aesthetic reality of castle rock and of stephen king stories but also it's about a woman with uh with alzheimer's or as they say in the episode something that can't be diagnosed but clearly she's um well she's like why don't we just call it that and and yeah right um and and that's that that's not a fun place to live but then again this is this is in no way a fun show yeah there's a dog in a suitcase man uh so (laughs) why don't we talk a little bit about lodge before we get out of here I would like to because, you know, keep it. These are all you were right to say. These are all moods, but this is a mood I'm happy to be in. And that still goes a long way. You know, this is a show that is proud to amble when other shows like Ozark, for example, like to sprint. That alone makes it worthy of our attention and and makes me like it. But I got to say, even watching this episode, there are moments when I'm like, is this just frittering away into nothingness? Are we all just licking the marijuana lace lollipop together? And then it surprises me. Then suddenly it snaps back into focus and you realize that Jim Gavin and the other, there are many producers and, you know, and Peter Rocco is the showrunner. They, they do know what they're doing. You know, they can, they can, they can tighten the leash when they want to. And it's surprisingly effective. So what actually happens in this episode, just for people who don't know? <laughs> I mean, when you say it out loud, you sound like a crazy person. Uh, Liz, who's played really well by Sonia Cassidy, um, gets stoned on a THC lollipop and eats a burrito in church and gets convinced to have a memorial service for their year for their dead father who died in the ocean a year ago and his body never washed up. And she agrees to do it basically in order to steal the money from the collection plate, I think. And then Dud uh, gets a temp job. And then the lonely woman who's running him at the temp job as they fire everyone from the town business uh, clings to him and asks him to come help clean her pool and he fishes a dead pool, dead rat out of the tank and then she hugs him and then the rat comes back to life and he gets a boner and then he claims at the ceremony that he's an alchemist and no one's really dead. Also, he fall, he crashes into a Murphy bed. He crashes into a Murphy bed and into a secret chamber. Yeah. Like a mausoleum. Yeah, something. that's part of like, it's part of the, uh, like a suite at the, at the links. Oh, oh. Also, 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 my dudes, don't forget about the lady who gets a migraine. That also happens. <laughs> I mean, look, this is, this is, I love the way this show is so low stakes that you all think I'm crazy or just been looking a lollipop myself, but it's low stakes in a way that I really appreciate because it, they're just kicking around talking about stuff, drinking beer out of pewter mugs, but they're also talking about the nature of life and time and regret and family and loneliness and you know, it's charming. It's weird. It's, it's like there's low-key mystery box stuff in this show, but it seriously makes togetherness seem like Breaking Bad in terms of its, like, <laughs> the intensity level. Totally. I, I, guess what, I guess what I want to say about it, though, and I, this, is, this is almost a useless comment, but 
I wish this show didn't feel set up to fail. And what I mean by that is, yes, it's low stakes. Um, yes, it's charming. There aren't really any big stars in it yet. Uh, Wyatt Russell is not yet a big star, though we both think he will be. Um, but, you know, it's it's it should, it needs to be in California. That's the vibe of the show, but they filmed in Atlanta for tax breaks. Um, it's on AMC. AMC, you know, pushed the whole thing out on their over-the-top service. The vibe does not seem to be hugely supportive of it, and the ratings seem to bear that out. And it's a bummer to me because I wish a show like this had been given a budget that maybe a more ambitious IP-based show could have merited to see that this can work on a larger scale. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I I guess what I'm trying to criticize is the the way we're talking about the show because it already almost feels like a beloved cult, lost cult favorite. And I, I think it deserves more than that. Nobody wants to be the cult favorite that's forgotten. Nobody wants that. I mean, there are worse things to be than Terriers because I still talk about it every chance I get, but Terriers should have had seven years. You know, it, it's, it's, I feel pre-bummed if that's a thing to say. Yeah, I'll be curious to see how far this show takes the mysticism that's kind of baked into it. And I use baked specifically because it has a kind of stoner mysticism. And not unlike Castle Rock, I don't know necessarily that X marks the spot with this. So you really are, it's your, your mileage varies based on how much you enjoy the, the path you take to get there. But in that same way where it's like Stephen King writes about evil, but like when you finally get to the to the confrontation of the evil, it's all kind of confusing and stupid. Uh, Lot 49 has a kind of searching, uh, stoned, sunburnt, like probing it at, at its heart. But, mm-hmm. I, you know, whether you really have to be into the characters and the minutia of their lives to really appreciate where it's going. I guess that's kind of what we're saying about all these shows today. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Absolutely. And that's what I, w- I want to bring it full circle to this idea of a vibe. If, if we're arguing you can watch a show for a vibe and then the plot or everything else can come secondarily, I wish that Lodge 49 had a chance to live and die on those merits, meaning I wish there were palm trees everywhere they went. I wish we had shots of an impossible blue ocean to contrast with the drabness of the squire suite or whatever it was they found upstairs that smelled of mold and had the secret mausoleum attached to it. You know, there's a reason why a show like Burn Notice that we have never covered on this podcast and maybe we never will, but that show is about Florida. It was about Miami and it filmed there. And you kind of knew that if you turned it on, regardless of how you felt about Jeffrey Donovan or, or Bruce Campbell or the, or the whatever the, the, they were solving that week, you could sink into it. You could slip it on like a pair of shades, you know. And I think Lodge 49, is, it, it doesn't have that half of the equation, which it should. It deserves that so we can get the full picture of its intention. Does that make sense? Absolutely. That's a, it's a great way of putting it. All right, man. So you're going to be off for the next few shows. Yes, like this is this is crazy for people who who are interested in the the way these things go. Like we are coming up, we're forty eight hours away from the tech scout. Do you know about that, Chris? No, you tell me. That's, that's we get a bus, and then everyone involved in the production, including all the network and studio executives, who I'm sure have better things to do than listen to me podcast, uh, get on a bus and we drive to every location and we talk about it. It takes like twelve hours. And then the cast is getting here on Thursday. And I know there's only been one announced cast member, but we've got some others, I promise. And they're really cool. And I'm very excited about it. Gene (laughs) Hackman! I'm I'm working on it. I got another drive planned. I know he loves lamb burritos. Yeah. Um, Yeah, we're going to do a table read and hear the words. And then uh, the week of September 10th, we're going to start filming this thing. So I can't join you twice a week. 
I hope you'll still consider me a part of the family. We'll have like, hope- it's just going to be a little while. No, nobody needs to, to tear up over it. And I, you know, if you asked me what a tech scout was, I thought it would be like a guy watching like a Latvian basketball game with an iPad. But, you know, um, that's why I'm here and you're there. We've got probably, I'm going to try, we're going to, we have a special show on Thursday because we have a, a great band called the Altons coming in to play, uh, much like uh, Rolling Blackouts Coastal Fever did a few months back. And then uh, we'll probably do, I will grab somebody and do some Ozark preview on Thursday. And then we're off Monday and we'll be, I'm out next Thursday. So no shows next week, probably unless we pre-record something. And then we'll have like a bunch of special guests and Andy will call in from time to time when he can. And then Andy will be back in the fall. Yeah, I mean, I, there may be low moments on set where I just start, I just bring this microphone and I just ask people to to, to comment on Ozark S2 or whatever else the issues that they are. <laughs> but uh, I'm, I'm your boy in the field. I'm not going anywhere. Thanks everybody for listening. And thank you. Thank you for holding it down. Oh, you, my pleasure, do you man. Do you, do you mind if I call you again on the phone in the next few weeks? Or is <laughs> you that, can call is me this like afternoon a, if you want. Are you sure I wasn't like a very public shot across the bow there? No, not at all. <laughs> Just make sure you have your chess pieces so you know like what era I'm calling you from. I'm going to give you a special yeah. ringtone. I'm going to go back to ringtone rap so that you can have it. I love it. Laffy Taffy. I can't wait. Talk to you later. Can't wait. Great job, Brancy. Talk to you soon. Today's episode of The Watch was brought to you by ADT. ADT can design and install a smart home just for you, backed by 24-7 protection with features such as doorman service, which is an ADT automation that unlocks the door for packages, friends, or your kids, or turndown service, an ADT automation that arms your system, locks your doors, and turns down your lights and thermostat. It's all controlled from the ADT app or the sound of your voice and backed by 24-7 protection. Just visit ADT.com smart to learn more about how ADT can design and install a secure smart home just for you.